Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. Um, we have been going through the book of Deuteronomy for several weeks, and we're going to take a break from that, partly because Tuesday is a, is a big day. What's happening on Tuesday? You know? Yeah, it's, it's the 500th anniversary of the Re- of Reformation. I know it's Halloween too, but, but uh, uh, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. You may be thinking, what's the Reformation? Well, we're going to talk about that, partly because I think it's going to help shed some light on the gospel, which is what we want to do every week. We want to shed light on the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, also helps us to appreciate those that in our history uh, ha- have maintained the gospel, have guarded the gospel. Uh, and uh, so we, we have s- uh, folks in our, in our history that we need to thank uh, that have helped us to, to, to have the gospel that we have uh, to believe in. And uh, the reason that October 31st is sort of the day that, that starts off the Reformation is because of a day where Martin Luther, who is an Augustinian monk, uh, he uh, is upset about some things, which we'll talk about, and he posts these 95 theses, these 95 truth precepts that he places on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, they're in Latin, so no one can read them except for scholastics. Uh, he wants to have a debate. Uh, he really is not trying to start a reformation. He's not trying to start a revolution, split the church. Uh, he is t- trying to start an academic debate, and this is how you would do it. You would, you would post something out on the church door, and then someone else would say, well, I have another alternative view, and they'd have a debate, and this is how they would kind of have this ongoing renewal of theology. Uh, but some, some things were in the water at that time of, of the culture that really set this up to be in a, ma- a major event. And, and Martin Luther had no idea that it was going to be a major event. So one of the things that was happening is that people didn't know their Bible because they, ha- they didn't have access to their Bible. Uh, the Bible was in Latin, and it had been for a thousand years, right? So either you studied it in its original languages, which was Hebrew or Greek, or you studied it in Latin. And so common people didn't have it in their uh, language. So they couldn't go to the Bible and, and figure out what, what was it that the Bible originally said about theological issues. Uh, there was also a lot of church corruption. Uh, there's always church corruption, right? There's always church corruption. It's Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. I mean, pe- people that run the church are sinners, right? We're, we're, we're all sinners. So, so of course, there's going to be uh, corruption. The problem with the corruption uh, in the Catholic Church at the time is that the corruption went all the way to the top, to the Pope. And the under- Catholic understanding is that the Pope is, is speaking on behalf of God on high. And so Pope Leo X was the Pope during the time of the Reformation, or at least the beginning parts of it. And even uh, Catholic uh, historian Ludwig von Pastor says this of his own church. He says, Leo, Pope Leo X was one of the most severe trials to which the, the, the God subjected the church. Uh, sometimes this time is known as the Babylonian captivity of the church. Like, like it was corrupt, and, and both Cat- uh, Catholics and Protestants uh, would acknowledge that, that it was uh, such. Um, there was also this rise of kind of this nationalism, right? So, so moving from feudalism where uh, sort of all the nobles are kind of connected in the Holy Roman Empire and really uh, the, the church is the glue that kind of holds that together in an uneasy network, uh, but it's starting to give way to more nation states. And so people are beginning to have a sense of I'm, I'm English, I'm German. And, and so uh, Martin Luther is, is in uh, Germany. And so they're beginning to have this sense that we're Germans and we don't like being told what to do by some guy in Italy, right? And so all these things are, are, are kind of bubbling up uh, in the culture at the time, and, and they present this opportunity uh, for a major reformation uh, in the church. Now, what precipitated these 95 theses for Luther? Two, two main things. So one was... Martin Luther's encounter with the gospel, and two, something called indulgences, right? So these two things kind of collide, and uh, they begin this uh, Reformation kind of thing at October 1st, 1517. So let's talk about each of those, Martin Luther's encounter with the gospel, and then we'll talk about indulgences. So Martin Luther was a son of a miner. Uh, he grew up fairly poor. His dad wanted him to not work as a miner and to be a lawyer. 
And so he worked really hard to make money and give that money to Martin so that Martin could go to law school. Martin went to law school. One day when Martin was going back from home to school, he got caught in a lightning storm. Now, in the medieval world, lightning storms were doubly uh, uh, you know, fear-producing because he was thinking, God's going to get me. He's going he's to hit me with a bolt of lightning. And so he cries out to God. He says, God, if you don't uh, get me with this bolt of lightning, I promise I'll become a monk. Well, he makes it through the storm, and he becomes a monk. And so he becomes an August, Augustinian monk. And he's very devoted. Uh, he wants to be in relationship with a holy God. And he believes that through monasticism, he will be able to be holy himself so that he can be in the presence of a holy God. Now, the garden variety Christian had things like charity, sobriety, and love, right? To make themselves more holy so that they could be in the presence of a holy God. But monks could add on top of that things like a vow of poverty, right? So, so giving all his worldly possessions away and living simply under. And then the next thing is a, a vow of, of, of obedience. So he's under the authority of the, those that are in authority over him in his monastery. Uh, fastings, spiritual vigils, uh, experiences of suffering that were called the mortification of the flesh. And so way, ways of suffering that would sort of pay penance for sins that have been committed such that Martin could become holier and be able to approach a holy God. And he worked really hard at it. In fact, he says, he says uh, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I'd kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. He wasn't eating enough to the degree, to the degree that he probably ruined his digestive system and had problems throughout his whole life. He was sleeping on a hard floor. He was refusing blankets and uh, trying to sleep in the cold. He would spend two hours confessing his sins to his spiritual director, and uh, that spiritual director would send him, you know, send him off, and then Martin would remember something else he forgot to confess, and he would come back and say, I, I want to confess this. And, and so he was literally driving himself insane trying to be holy enough to be in the presence of a holy God. Eventually, the head of the Augustinian order finally said, Martin, uh, you've got to leave this sort of monastic environment, and I'm going to send you to Wittenberg, and you're going to be a teacher. Right? That'll fix you. And so he goes to Wittenberg, and he's the pastor, the priest of the local parish, and he's the professor of Bible in the university at Wittenberg. So he starts studying the Bible. And he hadn't really studied the Bible all that much. In fact, some priests in medieval time had never studied the Bible. And so Martin's studying the Bible. He studies Psalms. He teaches Psalms. It's very formative for him. Then he begins to, to study and teach the book of Romans. As he reads Romans, he begins to reflect on the concept of justice or righteousness. And, and his understanding that had been given to him by the church, the way that you become righteous is not only by being forgiven through the cross, but also doing righteous acts. And then as you try harder to become more righteous and you pay penance for acts that were not righteous, you become just, you become righteous. Luther writes this about his reflections on the book of Romans. He says, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. He also writes, if you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look up on His fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger 
nor ungraciousness. Luther would never cease to forget that grace that was given to him as he was reading and reflecting on the book of Romans. That salvation is by grace, and it is through faith, not by paying penance, not by trying harder. He continued to teach and write and pastor. Uh, he wanted to see changes in the church, and he, he spoke out honestly against the things that he thought were wrong in the church, but he never dreamed that he'd ever start the Reformation. Uh, then there came a, a, a situation that he could no longer stand for. Right? Uh, it had to do with these things called indulgences. Um, now, to understand indulgences, you've got to understand the doctrine of purgatory. Now, this is a Catholic doctrine that there is a post-death intermediate state for those that are on their way to heaven. So, purgatory is not for those who are in hell. It's for those who are on their way to heaven. And then the idea is that they are being purged. That's where purgatory, that name comes from. They're being purged of uh, the guilt of their sin. Now, this was not an official, do uh, official doctrine of the Catholic Church until 1245, but it was always in the water throughout church history. It is to this day, right? The Roman Catholic Catechism today, section number 1472, says this, every sin even venial, now that word venial means a slight sin that's not requiring damnation, like a mortal sin, according to Catholic doctrine. So he says, every sin entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here or on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. So there are, there, the thinking is that by trusting in Christ, the, the, the punishment that is eternal punishment is taken care of in Christ. But there's a temporal punishment. There's sort of, sort of an uncleanness that has to be purged in purgatory in order to make you fit for heaven. Uh, you still, you hear this if you've ever been to a Catholic funeral. There's prayers being prayed for the deceased person to be able to move from purgatory into heaven. Now, in the medieval church, this idea of purgatory set the stage for something called indulgences. Uh, think of an indulgence like a coupon that the Pope can give you for years off in purgatory. Right? And I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm not saying that to be trite. I think this is a helpful way to think about it. It's like a coupon, and you can buy the coupon. And if you have the coupon, you have years off in purgatory, and you can more quickly move to uh, heaven. Um, this idea of indulgence first came about during the Crusades. So the Pope would offer this coupon to those who were willing to fight in the Crusades. And so not only were they getting monetary, uh, you know, physical money, but they were also being given sort of spiritual currency to not have to spend as much time in the Crusades or, 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 or as much time as purgatory, or perhaps no time in purgatory, if they were willing to fight in the name of the Pope. Now, this underwent sort of an innovation whereby not just soldiers could take uh, buy an indulgence or be a part of the indulgence system, but now someone who wanted to make a pilgrimage to a, what was called a relic. Now, a relic was, was something like the tooth of John the Baptist or the, a thorn from the crown of, of, of thorns that Jesus wore or the bones of a saint, right? And so, Different churches had different relics, and you could make a pilgrimage to that church, and if you did, you got years off of purgatory. Now, in uh, fact, Luther's own church at Wittenberg had relics, had a lot of relics, partly because Frederick the Wise, who was the elector of Saxony, who was sort of the, the local noble that was in charge, was really into relics. And he went all over the place and spent a whole lot of money to bring a lot of relics to Wittenberg because he wanted Wittenberg to be the Rome of Germany, right? And so they had like 19,000 holy bones of different uh, saints, different relics. And so if you went to that uh, church in Wittenberg, the castle church, on November 1st, right? All Saints Day, got to go on that day. If you go on that day, you would get 1,902,202 uh, and, two, 
I'm sorry, yeah, 1,902,202 years and 270 days taken off your time in purgatory. Now, you needed to be contrite about your sin. You also needed to make a contribution to the church to be able to, to take the, the coupon, all right? Now, Luther was rolling with this, right? This was happening in his church under his nose, and he was rolling with it, partly because it, it was actually bringing an income to the church. It was helping to, to, to support the church. It was helping support the university where he was teaching. And he's just, he's rolling along. He's, he's teaching, he's, he's pastoring, and this is going on uh, under his nose. Now, eventually things went too far. Uh, there was a new bishop in Luther's region, this guy named Albert of Brandenburg. And partly what you had to do to become a bishop is that you had to approach the Pope and ask that if he would make you a bishop, and if he would, you would then have to give a large sum of money in order to become the bishop. Uh, Albert didn't have a large sum of money, so he borrowed money from German bankers to pay the Pope so that he could become the bishop. Then the Pope made a deal with Albert Brandenburg. He said, I will give you the power to sell indulgences, and we'll make a 50-50 split. So you take 50% of the, of the money that comes in for the indulgences, you can pay off the German bankers, and I'll take 50% because I'm trying to build St. Peter's Basilica. And if you've been to Rome, you've seen the results uh, of that work. Now, when, when Martin Luther was hearing from his parishioners, right, that were going and, and, and finding out and, uh, more about these indulgences and they were buying these indulgences, uh, it, 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 it got him pretty worked up pretty upset. Um, partly it was even the way that they were being uh, sold, right? So this guy named Tetzel, and this is like the best picture I could find of Tetzel, so I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of Tetzel, but uh, he's, he's easily made fun of. So uh, Tetzel was uh, a Dominican monk, uh, so no love lost there between the Augustinians and Dominicans, um, but he was sort of the salesman of the indulgences. That was his, his role, and we know some of the speeches that he gave as he would go into a medieval village and he would have the, the cross uh, with the papal coat of arms on a staff and he'd come in and he'd also have this golden pillow. And on that pillow would be sort of the coupons, the indulgences that were signed, sealed, delivered by the Pope and would take off years from purgatory. And uh, he would come in and he would give speeches. And so this was part, a portion of one of the speeches. He says, Have you considered that you are lashed in a furious tempest amid the temptations and dangers of the world, and that you do not know whether you can reach the haven, not in your mortal body, but your immortal soul. Consider that all who are contrite and have confessed and made contribution will receive complete remission of all their sins. Listen to the voices of your dear relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We're in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. So this is the other part of the indulgence, that you could actually also buy it for your dead relatives that were being purged in purgatory, and you could take years off of their time there. His little tagline that he used often was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And when Luther got word of that, he was incensed. Now his reaction to that, like a good scholastic, was, let's have a debate. Right? And he wrote 95 theses in Latin, posted on the door, and he just thought some, another disinterested scholastic will take up the mantle for the opposing side and we'll have a nice dialogue. And out of that, possibly, we could kind of move a half step forward in renewing the theology of the Catholic Church. What Martin didn't realize was going to happen is that somebody was going to take the theses, they were going to translate them in German, use the printing press that had come out in 1440, thanks to Gutenberg, and start disseminating these as fast as they could. And voila, you got a Reformation. Right? Now, Martin Luther was not the first person to have these ideas, to, to, to seek to, to, to reform the church. Uh, a guy named John Wycliffe, who died in 1384. He criticized the corruption of the church. He was uh, from Oxford. He, he was a professor and a priest there. Uh, he translated the Bible into English, which was illegal. Uh, his followers, who became known as Lollards, kind of a gross name, but uh, Lollards, they were disseminating that 
English translation, it became illegal, it became worthy of death. Some of those lollards even lost their lives and were burnt at the stake because they were trying to get the Bible out in English. Uh, Wycliffe did die of natural causes. He was in exile, died of natural causes, but later on the church dug up his bones and burned his bones as a sign uh, that he was considered by them to be a heretic. Uh, John Huss, who was also a priest and teacher uh, in Charles University in Prague, uh, also, he had read Wycliffe, uh, started teaching uh, the gospel, started, started seeking to reform the church as well, and in 1415, he was burned uh, at the stake 100 years before Martin Luther. Now, there were many other people that were contemporaries with Martin Luther that were thinking some of the same things, seeking to reform the church. So, people like Ulrich Zwingli, I, I just, I like to say that, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, 1519 became a pastor of a church in Zurich and helped to usher in the Reformation uh, in Zurich and in Switzerland. John Calvin, who was a Frenchman, but then became uh, a very influential pastor in Geneva. Uh, he taught and wrote his most famous book, The Institutes of Christian Religion, uh, and, and so helped to, to bring about Reformation uh, in Geneva and uh, beyond. John Knox, who was a, a priest who was educated in St. Andrew's College, uh, uh, in Scotland. Uh, he was exiled for his views that were Reformed views, and then later came back in uh, to help uh, usher in the, the Reformation in uh, uh, Scotland and basically founded the Presbyterian Church. Uh, none of these, again, none of these thought they were going to split the church. They, that's why they're called Reformers. They, they desired to reform the church. And every other sort of re- Reformation movement uh, within the church before that had been taken in a, as like a means of renewal for the church. Most of these reform movements became monastic movements. And so the Jesuits, the Dominicans, the Augustines, right, right they, they were brought in to renew the church. But for whatever reason, in this uh, particular moment in history, they did not bring Martin Luther in with open arms. Right? They did everything they could to stamp it out. And it resulted in Protestantism. It resulted in uh, the Reformation. So, one way to kind of get the basics of the Reformation is uh, something that's called the five solas. And uh, th- this is like, like the, the, the kernel, really, of the Reformation, because they, they, they had many other things that they wrote about and talked about, and they disagreed on a lot of things, but, but this is the kernel that was really common uh, to the Reformers, and something that, that I think is, has been a, a great gift to us. So we're going to walk through these really quickly, these five solas, uh, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola Deo gloria. So the first one, sola scriptura, uh, and sola means alone or only, right? So uh, scripture alone. Now, the idea is that the Bible is the authority that, that is over the church, that the church is not the authority over the Bible, right? When you come to hear me, right, you, I think many of you, you're, you're thinking, you know, God is speaking through this time, through this sermon time. I, I pray that, it, that that is what happens. But you shouldn't be thinking, Robert has a, a, a direct line to God. And so I go to hear the holy man, and he's got a direct line. And so whatever comes out of his mouth is, 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 is like uh, the absolute words of God. No, no, what I'm doing is I'm going to the authority. I'm going to the Bible, and I'm exposing the Bible. I'm explaining the Bible because the Bible is authority. And so you should be reading your Bible, thinking about your Bible. And, and, and you're like, okay, well, Robert said this, but this doesn't line up with the Bible. Then, then that's not, those words aren't helpful, right? It's the, it's the Bible. It's the Scripture. That, that, that there's, the Reformers understood that there was no pope or bishop or council that was over the Bible, that the Bible was over all. The Bible is the pope of the Protestant. This, this is the Supreme Court that we appeal to, not to a particular person or a council, but to the Bible. This is why the, the, the Reformers were, were so uh, committed to translating the Bible into the languages of the common people. When Martin Luther had a time, a period of exile, and he was held up in this castle, and, and you know, he couldn't talk to anybody, couldn't do anything, uh, he didn't watch Netflix, uh, he translated the Bible in German. It's like the first thing he wanted to do. I got some free time, I'm going to translate the Bible in German. And he wanted to do that because he wanted to get the Bible into the language of common, everyday people. Sola Scriptura. 
We read this in Scripture, right? First Peter, verse 1, verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news, or the gospel that was preached to you. It's the Word delivered by the powerful Holy Spirit that brings the church to life. And so, that was primary. And, and the Reformation, it, it stands on sola scriptura. If you don't have sola scriptura, you don't really have the Reformation. So this, this is the first of the, of the solas. This is Luther on the primacy of the Bible. He says, from the beginning of my Reformation, I've asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of His Word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's Word, I know I'm walking in His way and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion. When Calvin came to Geneva, uh, the, the, the church services uh, were total chaos. Um, what was happening is at the front would be a priest who was giving a mass, and everything was in Latin. Everything that was, was being said, everything that was talked about was in Latin. No one had any idea what was being said from the front. And so there were, there were no benches, there were no chairs. You, you would just stand there, and it, it was total chaos. They were talking to each other. Their kids were running around. Sometimes they would bring animals into the sanctuary, and they were running around. But it didn't matter because they couldn't understand what was being said anyway. And basically, they wanted to be there to get the sacrament and then move on. And so when Calvin shows up, he says, first things first, we're going to have benches. Wow, what an innovation, right? We're going to have benches in the sanctuary. And everyone's like, Why? He says, because you're going to sit and you're going to listen to a sermon that you understand in your own language that we're going to explain the Bible in. And, and that's what he did. And that's what his company of pastors did. And they had four preaching uh, services every day. 5 a.m. Uh, was the servants. So before they had to cook breakfast for the household, they'd come in, 5 a.m., they would be taught and they would hear the, the Word of God. 8 a.m., the, the folks that were eating that breakfast, they would come in and they would hear the Bible taught. Noon would be those that uh, were, were, were coming to faith, those that were being catechized is what it's called, and they, they were un- coming to understand the basics of Christian teaching. Uh, and then 3 p.m., another one for just kind of catch-all. Like anybody that missed any of those others, you come on in and you hear the Word of God preached every day, every day, four different sermons uh, preached in three different locations in Geneva by a whole company uh, of pastors. Sola Scriptura. Right? This is, this is the, the foundation. Now, what they found as they studied the Scripture is that salvation is by grace alone. Right? Sola gratia. That salvation is 100% God. That it's a free gift from God. You heard this in last week's sermon, right? Is, is, is that it is from God. It is not a 50-50 deal where God says, okay, I'll come halfway and I'll die on the cross for you, but you come the rest of the way by paying pen- penance and living a holy life that earns your salvation, which is the, the, the sense of medieval Catholicism. And so they, they, as they read Scripture, they realized, no, this is grace alone. And part of that was the predicament that human beings find themselves in before they become Christians. Romans 3.10, for instance, it says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then later in that same chapter, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It seemed clear in Scripture as they studied that, that it, there's no work that a human does that saves them. It is the work of Christ that's given as a free gift of grace to human beings. You read that in places like Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Grace alone. I had a, a wonderful, encouraging conversation this week with someone who's a, a new person to, to Mercy House, and we were getting coffee, and I was hearing his story, and part of his story is drug and alcohol uh, issues and, 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 and is growing up. And he said to me, I was in and out of drug treatment programs and detoxes 20 times. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he must be exaggerating. And then he made a point to say, I'm not kidding. I was in and out of drug treatment 20 times. I was like, what changed? Like, what happened? And he's like, well, the 20th time I met Steve. And Steve's a Christian. Steve wasn't a therapist. He wasn't a counselor. He was just one of the staff. He, he shared the gospel with this guy that he could be forgiven in Christ, that he could be given transforming grace in Christ. He invited this guy to, to, to church, and he converted, became a Christian. And by grace, he, he's made new. He's given freedom from drugs and alcohol. No treatment program, nothing had worked. It was Christ, grace alone. And he said, you know that sermon when you kept saying grace alone? He's like, I know it's grace alone. So how do we access that grace? The next sola, sola fide, right? Faith alone. Now, Catholics and Protestants agree where salvation comes from, right? Ultimately, it comes from Christ's death on the cross. Uh, we believe God is a trinity, right? We believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that there's one God, three persons. We believe uh, that the Bible is inspired by God. We believe there's authority there. A lot of common ground, okay, between Protestants and Catholics. Where, where, where we disagree, or one of the major places where we disagree is how you access that salvation, how you access that salvation. So, for instance, I usually share this in our Meet Mercy House class when I'm talking about baptism. Uh, Roman Catholic Catechism, section 1213, says, Through baptism we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of, the, of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the Word. The understanding of Catholicism, still to this day, is that you access the grace, the salvation, not through your faith, but through the sacrament, through the church, right? And that was not the understanding of the Reformers because the Reformers were reading verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So as they read scriptures like that, they came to the belief, it's faith alone. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's not even a 99-1%. It's faith alone. It's receiving what God has given by His grace. Well, faith in what? Or better, faith in who? Right? This brings us to the next sola. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Now, nearly every medieval European believed that Christ at some level, was part of their salvation, that His death on the cross was needed for them to have eternal life. But, but their idea was that it was Jesus plus, right? It was Jesus plus their participation in the sacraments, their participation in the church. Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus communion, right? Jesus plus the sacraments of the church. If you really wanted to add a big plus, become a monk, Jesus plus monasticism, right? But this is not what the Reformers read in Scripture. So, for instance, John 6 Jesus is having a conversation with uh, some, some Jews, and they, they, they say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That scripture and many others that point to the reality that it is faith alone. This is how you access the grace that's given in Christ. And if it's not faith alone, then you're actually stealing glory from God. If it's Jesus plus me, if it's Jesus plus my activities, moral or religious or otherwise, I'm stealing away the glory that's due God. This brings us to the fifth and final sola, right? Sola Deo Gloria. That the gospel is God-centered. It's God-centered. Now, it doesn't mean it's not beneficial to me. It's the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive. 
It's the greatest blessing that any of us could ever receive. All our needs are met in Christ, both in this life and a life to come. So it, it's the best news ever, but I am not the ultimate reason for the gospel. The glory of God is the ultimate reason for the gospel. The gospel is God-centered, as is everything, right? It's God-centered. In Philippians 2, Apostle Paul goes through this kind of uh, recapping of the gospel, Jesus becoming a human being and Jesus laying down his life and Jesus being resurrected. And then he gets to the part of his exaltation and he says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that the end game for the gospel is the glory of God, God alone. Calvin, who wrote a lot about the glory of God, says this, this root idea which served as the key to unlock the rich treasures of the Scriptures was the preeminence of God's glory in the consideration of all that has been created. Sola Deo Gloria. So why does this matter? Bunch of dead white guys from Europe, right? Why are we we talking about this? Well, those dead white guys from Europe and women as well that were part of the Reformation movement, and there were many, that what, what they did was to reclaim the gospel, okay? They got the gospel right, and we owe a lot to them that they reclaimed that gospel. Now, again, they fought over all kinds of stuff, okay? I don't want to paint them as saints or perfect or they were all like in unity about everything. They, they argued over the Lord's Supper and baptism and the nature of the, the hierarchy of the church and church and state. And I mean, there's just so many things that they were trying to hash out and figure out and they fought over. But these five solas, they, they stood on these five solas. And, and so, just this, this appreciation for this reclaiming of the gospel. It, it's also a, a reminder, right, to us that we have been given the responsibility ourselves to guard the gospel, right, to make sure that we don't lose it. And you might think, oh, we're never going to lose the gospel. Well, they did. If it can happen to them, it can certainly happen to us, and we're warned in Scripture, to guard the gospel, right? For, uh, 2 Timothy 1, he's, he's being told by Paul, Timothy's a young pastor, and uh, Paul's writing to him saying, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them whom are... Uh, Phagellus and Hermogenes, right? Like he's saying, Timothy, guard the trust. Guard the gospel. Not in your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, guard the gospel. And then he mentions two people that are off the rails who heard the gospel truth and had seemingly been following it and believing it and then left it. And, and he's saying, guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Uh, I, I think there are many false gospels that are, that are in the water today. This is one of the things about you're swimming in, in a culture of ideas and things are coming at you. And, and we look at maybe medieval Europe and we're like, how could you guys not see that? You know, like, but, but they were swimming in the culture just like we're swimming in the culture, right? And so, so we have to, to, to know our gospel and know our Bible and know our doctrine such that we can stand for the gospel, right? So there's some gospels out there, I think, that are endangering the true gospel. So one is a morality-centered gospel, right? I think you see this in, in, in some pockets of evangelicalism that have kind of gotten into the, the hip pocket of, 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 of President Trump. And they're like, Trump can do no wrong, right? He is God's man. And all these kinds of things I'm watching on television, and, and, and I'm just like, what, what are they thinking, right? 
But what they're thinking is, is that somehow their election of a particular politician is going to lead to certain moral legislation that they think is somehow going to save our country, right? And those issues, do they matter? Yes, absolutely they matter. Right? Abortion, marriage, the, these kind of social issues, uh, moral issues, absolutely uh, they matter. But they matter because of the gospel, And so we tether ourselves to the gospel, and from that we move out. We don't put our hope and our trust in a particular party, a particular political agenda. We put it in Christ alone. There's the society-centered gospel. We're going to improve society. We're going to address injustice. And we we absolutely should address injustice, right? Uh, we, we should condemn injustice. Uh, these uh, white life uh, matters, uh, things that are going on this weekend, absolutely, we condemn those. And, and we do that because of the gospel. Not just because we want to make the world a better place, but because of the Christ alone gospel. We remain tethered to that as our anchor. Uh, the self-centered gospel. I, I've been railing against this in our Deuteronomy series over and over and over. This idea that I've been calling moral therapeutic deism, where it's just kind of, I'm going to be a good person, and that's going to give me a good life, and if I don't have a good life, I'm going to ask God, and He's going to get involved, and then after He gives me my good life back, I'm not going to be involved with Him anymore. And this is not Christianity. This is not the gospel. And so this sort of self-centered, self-serving Jesus is all about me, and He just wants my life to be amazing. That, that is not the gospel. The gospel is God-centered. And we are blessed when we become God-centered because of the gospel. Uh, religion-centered gospel. Now, this is what Luther was wor- working against in his own world, this idea of sort of Jesus plus, that, yeah, Jesus saves us, but then we've got to add some things onto that to, to save ourselves. This certainly continues to happen in, in, in different church traditions, including our own. Right? So there's some folks that come into a place that's preaching the gospel, but it's just our default to then begin to trust in our good works or our religious activities. And the way that we can know when somebody's trusting in religious activities and good works and morality is when something goes wrong. What do they do? And so when something goes wrong and they're like, you know what, I'm out. I'm not following Jesus anymore. We know they weren't trusting in Jesus. They were trusting in their religion, in their ethics, in their morality, right? And so this, this religion-centered gospel, we've got to root that out. Right? It's, it's in Christ alone. Or perhaps even the idea that other religions can save you. That's a religion-centered gospel as well. And saying, well, Christianity is just one route and it's one avenue of salvation, but other religions can also save. Look, that is not the gospel. And the, the exclusive claims of Jesus as part of the true gospel. Hard to say, hard, hard to, to have those conversations in our current uh, cultural context, but it's true, right? And it's a, it's a false gospel to say anything different. Uh, what we want to have is a Christ-centered gospel. Uh, that we're not trusting in morality or religion or politics or some sort of uh, thing other than Jesus Christ. We trust in Christ alone. We hold fast to that truth. So my question to you is, will you stand on these solas that come from God's Word? Will you stand? Will you stand? Will you stand on Scripture Alone. What will you stand on grace alone? Will you stand on faith alone? What will you stand on Christ alone? Will you stand on the glory of God alone? And I, I feel like, you know, as a, you know, last week is my birthday and I turned 49 and, and I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to pass this torch to the next generation to stand. And honestly, I think it's going to be harder for you to stand than it was for me. I think that the, 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 what's going down in our, our current culture, uh, cultural context, it's, it's going to be harder and harder to stand. But 
I think the actual conversions that are being experienced as people trust in Christ are, are going to be more glorious. They're going to be deeper. They're going to be more fruitful because they're not trusting in something else. They're actually trusting in Christ alone. So I'm, I'm encouraged to see how, how many of you are loving Jesus and trusting in Jesus and letting that be what you move out from as you deal with the issues in your culture. So when Martin Luther um, finally was apprehended by the authorities and had to appear in the Diet of Worms, didn't that sound good? Uh, or if you're German, the Diet of Worms. It's basically his trial. He's standing before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And the first thing they do is they say, do you agree with the teachings of John Huss, who was burned at the stake 100 years before? And so you don't want to be on Team Huss, okay? Uh, and, you know, he, he kind of does, you know, a little, uh, little movement there, and he's like, okay, no, I mean, yes, I mean, I don't know what I mean. And, and then they say, well, we want you to recant all of your teaching, and they have all of his books there on the table. And, and he's like, now, wait a minute. I mean, there's some things I said in there that I know you guys agree with. Like, you guys agree with the Trinity, right? I mean, you agree with that. I put that in there, so I can't recant all these things. So it's kind of this back, back and forth. And then they're getting frustrated with him, and they're like, you know what we're saying. Recant your criticism of the church. And, and this is one of those moments where it, it, I love this moment because it, it, it makes me realize Martin Luther was no superhero, right? Because here's what he does. He basically asks if he could sleep on it. <laughs> he's, he's like, I, I just, could I just have like a night to think about? <laughs> and they say yes. And so he's back to his cell, and he's praying, and he's writing, and he's, he's writing a hymn, and he, he's, he's, he's going through uh, a night of torture, I'm sure. He's, he's so afraid because he, as far as he knows, he's going to be the next John Huss, right? He's going to be completely burnt at the stake. But he comes back in, and he has a statement ready, and we know what that statement was. And here's the, the, the very end of it. He says this, If then I'm not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I'm not satisfied by the very text I've cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything." For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Will you stand? Will you stand on the five solas? We were reminded of what we're standing on as we come to this table. We're reminded on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the, the night before his death, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, he says, take, eat, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. I think part of the reason he institutes this is because he wants them to keep going back to the cross, keep going back to his, his death, his salvation that he alone provides. In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, right? For the remission of sins as often as you drink this. Do this in remembrance of me. He was letting them know the only thing that's going to take away your sins, the, the guilt of the sins, the punishment that's required from those sins is the punishment that's placed on Jesus. And putting your faith alone on Christ. And so we act this out every time we come up here. Where we, we realize it's by grace alone. This is a gift to you, right? It's, like I said last week, this is not a potluck where you bring a little bit for the meal and Jesus brings a little bit for the meal. No, no, Jesus offers it. It's a gift 100% of grace. And then you receive it with the open hand of faith. And you, you, you've realized your need by God's grace, and you've received it. And through that trust in Christ alone, you've been made new. You've been made a Christian. Now, for some of you, you need to do that today. And perhaps this little history lesson has helped clarify some of the gospel. And that's really my hope. And we're not going to have a history lesson every week. So if, if you're like, you know, not into this, it's okay. We'll be back to the Bible next week. 
But it, perhaps it's possible, and my prayer was, that it, it's, it's clarifying some things for you, that you've been trusting perhaps in Jesus plus or not Jesus at all, and now you, you sense God's call to, to trust in Christ alone. So do that this morning. Cry out to God, asking Him for forgiveness, asking Him to make you His child. He is more than willing to do that. It is why He died. It is what He, he wants. And for others of us, just a reminder of this gospel. We don't want to take it for granted. And that there are dark times in the church where very few understood it. And that we, we have our Bibles in our hands. Right? We can read this thing in our own language and we can know about the things of God. Man, this is so amazing to be in this kind of a time. It's even on my phone. Right? And so just to be grateful for that heritage and the delivery of that truth to us through the ages. So let's pray. God, we give you thanks. You are a good God. You love your children. You have poured out everything for them. You've given this abundant grace that we hear about in the good news, the gospel. And so we're refreshed by that. We need it. Every, we need to be preached to about the gospel every week, Lord, because we forget it and we begin to, to move in our default of sort of a Jesus plus life. But God, we, 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 we trust in Christ alone. We receive this bread and this cup as a way to remember what you've done for us and the, the, the grace, the gift. And God, may it uh, refresh us. May it strengthen us, Lord, not just to have a nice time in a church service, but to stand. God, help us. It is hard to stand in this world that we live in. And God, we cannot do it except by your grace and your mercy and the powerful Holy Spirit. So help each one of us, Lord, as we are refreshed by the gospel, to, to stand and to go forth from this place on the rock-solid foundation of Christ alone. Lord, bless this bread, bless this cup and this time together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.